We have probably in the past three decades heard a lot, read a lot, been told a lot about self-esteem. It seems whether it's education, a tutor, a mentor, a coach, we're building kids' self-esteem. It's important that everyone has an opportunity to try. We don't want them to be underperformers or feel insecure or feel shame. So we work pretty diligently at helping people to have a healthy self-esteem. The problem, however, is as we fast forward, if we tell everyone they can do everything, there will at some point be a wall which we can't climb over. We'll hit a place that our self-esteem, just because we feel good about ourselves, is not going to make us the best musician, the best doctor, the best painter, the best artist, the best whatever. It's not just a matter of, I think I can, I think I can, self-esteem and feeling good about ourselves. In fact, there's an implicit danger if we over-inflate self-esteem. We can give kids the impression that they can do anything and that we all deserve a trophy on the team. There's no such thing as the most valuable player or most improved player or such anymore because that will hurt somebody else's feelings. So let's give everybody the same little trophy and we're all the best. Now, we can analyze the pop culture's attention to this, but that's really what it's been relegated to. Self-esteem is important. We want to encourage each other. Uh, But it's not just self-esteem as a believer. It's a biblical assessment of who we are. In Romans chapter 12, Paul writes, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, I like that, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Not to think more highly than one ought to think. The King James said to be sober, to think sober about yourself. So the, the, the temptation is don't think higher than you should. Don't be arrogant. Okay, you're good. You have confidence in area. Great. Don't think more highly of yourself. Implication, don't think lower of yourself either, but rather have a sober judgment, have a sound judgment. So if we look at continuum, there are those of us who are pretty confident people in life, and confidence can lead to pride. Confidence can lead to hubris and arrogance, right? And there are those of us that are a little insecure, and that can lead to what? Self-loathing and self-hatred and contempt. So Paul says, no, have sober judgment. Know who you are, how God's made you. You know, I'm pretty good in languages. I'm pretty good in some things. I'm not good in math. I, I can't become an accountant, nor would I want to. With all respect to people that like numbers, God bless you. I just don't like numbers. I, I just, as long as there's a plus sign, I'm happy. I just don't like numbers and sitting in front of spreadsheets. You know, tie me up, make me write bad checks. I hate that whole lifestyle. Some of you are wired that way. Some are terrified to stand in front of a group and open their mouth or play an instrument or try to sing. Others are skilled and they can cut open a body and go in there and perform surgery and work wonders to help people. And others are squeamish with a little bit of blood. We're made differently. So the idea of uh, being good at everything, take that off the shelf. Paul says, I speak to every one of you. Don't think more highly than you ought to think, but think to us so as to have sound judgment. Why? How? As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And I set that up as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and following this morning, because if, if for a moment we could extrapolate ourselves from the world's image of us, from our own 
either overinflated or underinflated image of ourselves, our perception, are we really that great? Are we really that bad? And if we, could, if we could somehow clear all that off the mirror, get all the fog and dirt off and grime off the mirror and look at ourselves clearly, what would we see? If we could eliminate the voices of our past, if we could eliminate our self-perception that is unrealistic or maybe unfair, what would we see? According to Ephesians chapter 2, we'd see a dead man. We'd see a person who is dead in their relationship to God, who is a sinful person who deserves hell. That's not self-esteem the way the world teaches it. You're going to hell. Now, feel good about it and make good grades. Doesn't really help much, does it? But that's what Scripture is telling us. No one deserves God's grace. No one deserves God's favor. If for one moment you and I saw ourselves clearly, I think as we looked at the image of a holy and perfect and righteous God, we would be terrified. So we're dead in our position in sin. But praise God, the passage does not end there. In verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, but God, the biggest contrast perhaps in the book of Ephesians, but God, you're dead in your sins. No, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, 1 to 3, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we have the big change. But now, but God, because he's rich in mercy. Um, as unregenerate sinners, without hope, without prayer, nothing we could do that's going to get God's attention. We deserve hell and condemnation, but God is rich in mercy. The contrast couldn't be more vivid. I remember in what we used to call junior high years, the 7th through 10th uh, grade, middle school now, I guess, where I grew up. I was in parochial schools, all boys' school and middle school and junior high, and um, I was sent to the office a lot of times to get SWATs. How many of you got SWATs, pops, belted, whatever it was? When you, real high. Let's look around the room. How many of you got punished? Corporal punishment, it was called. Corporal punishment. And you survived. You're here. Amazing. Um, but uh, I, I experienced a lot of that corporal punishment as a child. I know it's hard to imagine, but I did. And I was often sent down to the principal. Well, in ninth grade in the all-boys school, um, these were coaches and priests that had hands like meat hooks. I mean, these were men. And when you were sent to Father Shaver, uh, it was terrifying. And I can still, as though it happened this morning, I can see the hallway going to Father Shaver's office in that pristine Catholic school. Everything was polished and clean and minimalistic. And you walked down and you handed Father Shaver the slip that the teacher had written. And uh, not to be too uh, upsetting, but... He made you take your pants off, you kept shorts on, take your pants off, grab your ankles with your hands, lock your knees, and he would give you a swat just with your briefs on. Now, he had this ominous piece of oak that he kept in his desk drawer, this paddle. He made it in wood shop. It had holes drilled in it that were countersunk, 
and it was varnished, and it had a lanyard on it so he could hold on to it. It was an intimida- It was legendary. And there were theories as to why he had the holes drilled in it. Some thought it was for air. Some thought it was to leave more welts on your derriere. But uh, it was nevertheless terrifying. And as a boy, even a football player, even the center of our team, that was a huge guy. You came out of Father Shaver's office with tears running down your face because it hurt so badly. Um, And he had this weird thing. If you flinched, he would give you another one. What's that about? It's just, you know, but I survived and, uh, you know, I deserved probably a lot more than I got. There's no, no disputing that. I remember being terrified being sent to Father Schaefer's office. But that doesn't even begin to tip the scale to think about what it would be to face a holy God's wrath. That because of our sin condition, we deserve hell, we deserve separation, we deserve eternal separation and punishment because of our own willful bent of sin. But God, rich in mercy. We're all dead men walking, but he was rich in mercy. Dr. Honer studies the first century use of the word mercy and finds Aristotle writing about it. An emotional concern for those who un deservedly suffer some calamity. Those who suffered or think that they might suffer the same disaster are more likely to have pity or mercy. We'd call it empathy today. The word is translated from the Old Testament hesed. We've talked about this many times. If you use a New American Standard, it's the word loving kindness. If you use an ESV, it's always translated steadfast love. Other translations, you can't always know when the word appears, but those two English translations have helped us with consistency. Loving kindness or steadfast love means this. It means God loves to be loyal to his chosen people and his covenant promise. God chose Israel not because they were better sinners or not as bad sinners. He chose them for reasons only he knows, and they were known as what? A stubborn and stiff-necked people. God chose those people, and he made covenant promises to them. So when we talk about God's loyal, loving kindness, what we're saying is God loves to be loyal to the fact that he chose these people and he made promises that he will not bend or break. That's what God's loving kindness means. So now we're reading how the New Testament renders that word here, mercy. So God is rich in loving kindness in the Old Testament, rich in mercy. God chooses people for reasons not because we are better than others. We will never know why he chose us. That's the mystery of salvation. But he also makes promises to you that will never change. God is rich in this, Paul says, and that he chose us. We can trust God at his character. We can trust him at his word. Again, Aristotle, the person who is most compassionate is the one who suffered a similar calamity. What are we seeing here? God loves us because what? He saw what his son endured. He loves us so much he's going to allow his son to be crucified and separated. The physical aspect of crucifixion is not the nomenclature. It's the separation of his son from himself. He's willing to do that knowing his son will suffer infinitely more than we can comprehend because he loves you, because he loves me. God's mercy is not miserly, it's rich. It's lavish. Our desperate condition, we're dead. 
verse 4, continuing, because of his great love with which he loved us. We're told he has rich in mercy. Why? We're told now because he loves greatly. We could simply say he has great mercy because he has great love. We saw in chapter 1, verse 4, that love is seeking someone's highest good, regardless of what they do. Love is not tit for tat. When you're dating and, and courting each other, you do things to show that you love the girl, that you love the guy, and you do them willingly and compulsive. You're compulsive to do them. You like doing them. Then you get married. In very short order, it becomes tit for tat. I promise you, Every time I get into Cindy's car, this is not an overstatement. If she was here, she would shake her head, yes. When I get into her car, the gas gauge is on E. Every time, 33 years of marriage and counting, it's on E. When I get in it, it's, and I, we used to fight about it, why don't you fill it up? So then I, then I thought, well, you know, if I would love my wife, I'd fill up her car. So I fill up her car, and I leave the receipt on her seat in the car. So she'll see that I left it there and say something about it. Did she ever say anything about it? No. And it dawned on me one day, if I loved my wife, I'd fill up her car and get it detailed occasionally and never say a word if she didn't even notice. But the flesh side of me wants her to notice. I want her to say, oh, thank you for filling up my car and having it cleaned. That was so considerate of you. You went out of your way. You spent money. It was so kind. I mean, I can't believe you thought about me that way. It just means the world to me, Michael, and bat her eyes at me. <laughs> Ain't going to happen in this world. <laughs> ain't going to happen in his lifetime. I can do something for her, intentional design, romantic, plan it out, and she'll go, oh, thanks. <laughs> God's love is not tit for tat. I do this so you will do that. That's human love. That's human self-esteem nonsense. It's real, but it's not spiritual. God loves us in a way we can't comprehend. He seeks our highest good. He's rich in mercy because he's rich and great in love with which he loved us. God's character is described as rich in mercy because of his great love. Further, verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. Parentheses, for by grace you have been saved. God's great love accomplishes three things. There are three key verbs on the screen as well, and these are verbs that Paul essentially coins. The words existed in the first century, but he sticks them together and makes unique words for his point. The first one is made alive together. We're made alive together. With the exception of one time in 1 Corinthians 15, this word always has the nuance of the Father, Son, or Spirit making an unregenerate person alive. In other words, this made alive always, except once, refers to salvation. The one time it doesn't in 1 Corinthians 15 is when Paul illustrates a seed is dead and then it's made alive. And if you've ever, uh, with your children, done a little seed in the styrofoam cup, if you take a seed out of an apple and you put it right into the cup, it's going to mold and nothing will ever happen, right? It's got to die before it will grow. And that's the illustration Paul uses to explain new life. Every other time it's used, when you're made alive, you're made alive dead spiritually, and you're alive by God. Notice he says together. You're made alive with Christ. We have the screen, the set. In Christ, we are made alive. Christ dies physically, we're dead spiritually. Christ is raised physically, we're raised spiritually. And on the comparison will go in this relationship with him. 
Now, in your Bible, you probably have a parenthesis or an M dash, a long dash, by the word, by grace you have been saved. We'll talk more about this next week, but I would argue Paul is so um, excited as he pens the words the Spirit is giving him that he, he can't suppress it. And he, he burst out this, this mercy, this great love with which he loved us, for by grace you've been saved. He's emphasizing you and I can do nothing to earn God's favor. We can do nothing to earn his mercy. We can't be a better sinner than somebody else. We can't love people a little more by adopting orphans. We can't be a little bit better, and therefore God's going to bless us and love us and care about us. That dismantles grace. Now, grace has to be understood as more than God doing a kind thing. We often hear grace defined as undeserved favor or unmerited favor. And to me, that's half a definition. Grace is undeserved favor in the face of deserved wrath. Undeserved favor in the face of deserved wrath. When your children disobey, you may or may not give them consequences. They might lose a privilege. They, may, they can't use technology, or you take something away, or no dessert for a week, or maybe you still, God help you if you do, use corporal punishment. Uh, but anyway, there's some reward-benefit ratio thing. So uh, your child says, have mercy on me in the throes of a conflict. And you say, all right, I'll, I'll go easy on you. That's the way life works. It's not the way God works. We all deserve death, destruction, separation forever. But God, rich in grace, rich in love, and here it's grace is the, we might say grace is the motivation from God, undeserved favor in the face of deserved wrath. Save can almost always in the New Testament has a, a, a double entendre meaning. It means two things. It almost always means physical safety as well as spiritual. Not always, but most times. When Paul is on the sea and they're jettisoning the cargo and the tackle and they're afraid for their lives, Paul says, we're going to live. We're going to be saved. Is he talking about walking and out, praying a prayer, being baptized, joining a church? No, they're going to be physically saved from the sea. What a great word to use to express what it means to have a relationship with God. We're going to be saved from certain death. Grace is unmerited favor in the face of deserved wrath. When we are all going to die, we are all not going to be saved, and he saves us from that certain death that all humans will face if we are rightly related to him. The second main verb is raised us up with him. And of course, the spiritual logical progression is fun to see. We're made alive and now we're raised. What does it sound like? It sounds like the resurrection of Christ. We're, he's dead and buried. The burial confirms his dead. He's alive. How do we prove it? He comes out of the grave. He's made alive. He's raised up and he's ascended. That proves he has power over death. So many make the comparison there. Again, he dies physically, we're dead spiritually. He's raised physically, and we are going to be raised up. Notice, with him. There was some uh, B movie made years ago. I can't recall all the details. Uh, I think it's Death Becomes Her. Uh, Meryl Streep, and I forget the other actress. Gold, Goldie Hawn, was it Meryl Streep, Goldie Hawn? And that somehow they're able to live forever. And it's a sick, dark comedy. But in the end, there, there are these old, you know, falling to pieces, literally people. And the point to me is to live forever in the human condition with, uh, with 
skin creams and Botox and uh, augmented surgeries and clothing and hair transplants and all things we have available for us to do prolongs us by what? Ten years, let's say. And if you juice and eat right and become a vegan and all the other things you can do, you might get in there six months, you know, in there maybe. <laughs> you ever stop to think why we hang on so hard, so hard to this life? Why, why do we clutch so tenaciously to a vapor? I'm not, I'm, I'm not talking about a death wish. I'm not talking about wanting to die. I'm asking, why do we fight aging? I'd rather be raised up with him. I'd rather be alive in a new body with no more pain. I'd rather all of us be free of cancer and Alzheimer's and dementia and ALS and heart disease and AIDS. And even if we cure all those in our lifetime, that that it's still there's still a day we die. By grace you've been saved. Paul can't constrain himself. You've been made alive with him. You've been raised up with him. And now, third, you're seated with him in the heavenly places. To think of being living forever apart from him would be horrible. Think of living forever alone. I mean, some of us like alone time. I love alone time. If you're a parent, you love alone time. If you're a grandparent, you love having your kids back home. You know, it's, it's always either or, right? When we're when we're we want to be alone, we're not. When we're alone, we want to pe- people around. We're never happy. We're schizophrenic. But I like being alone. I could be a monk. I'm convinced. I could just I could hole up with books and be happy. Leave me alone. But if I was put in that position for a long period of time, I'm pretty sure I'd change my mind. We weren't designed to be alone. Christ is going to make us alive, raise us up, and then thirdly, we're going to be seated, look, with him. All three verbs Paul puts together, made alive with him, raised with him, seated with him, is the idea you're in a relationship with this God. You're not at some distant, oh, he's God over there and I'm living out my life trying to figure it out. You are in Christ, as the set says so prominently, don't miss it. Don't become accustomed to it. We are in Christ. And then he noticed, and then he mentions in the heavenly places. It's the third time we've seen it so far in Ephesians. It's five, it occurs five times in the little book, a little letter. And each time it reminds us there's a realm out there that's not this world. I hope you never tire of Ephesians 1 3. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then I ask myself, why do you whine, Michael? Why do you complain about filling in the blank? Because I'm not walking in Christ, I'm walking in the flesh. And that's the battle. You're made alive, you're raised with him, you're seated with him, you're in a relationship, and you have access to those blessings because you're related to him. When Cindy and I lived in the northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area, we were privileged to do many things we would have never been able to do because of people who were in high places. You perhaps have been invited someplace and sat in nice seats or been gone to some affair that you could never have gotten into, but a friend of yours was related to someone and somehow you got the deal. 
One of the most memorable ones was a general who invited me up to the White House, and I did a little event, and afterwards he says, do you have a little time? So, Sorry, i got to go back to work. Of course I have time. I'm in the White House, for goodness sakes. I want to show you something. And we, this is the Cook's Tour, if you will. We went downstairs to the bowels of the White House, and the White House, like all buildings that were built, the basements were never intended to be Hab, you know, habitable. They were, they were for storage and for the structure of the building. They weren't designed to be finished out. That's why they were basements. Well, the basement of the White House, if you will, some of these areas are four and five feet tall. And so we are literally in the bottom of the White House in areas where they'd run conduits and plumbing and cast iron and then fiber optics as they were overbuilding the complex. And so we're down in the bottom of the White House in this area that's four and five feet tall. And we stop and he, he look, look up and there's some stones like this that are holding the structure up. And I look at it and he says, look at him. I look second time. I'm missing it, General. What am I seeing? And he goes, look at the color. And they're white on two sides and they're all black and brown on the bottom. And I said, I'm sorry. He goes, 1812? When the British burned the White House, those are the scorch marks on the bricks when the White House was burned in 1814. And I sat there dumbfounded, not knowing my history very well, but knowing that the Brits did come over here to destroy the White House and many buildings they burned. And I sat in that hunched area looking at it going, thinking about 1814, this thing was on fire, and we're looking at the remnants of the marks in fact, they went back later and they encased that area in plexiglass to preserve it because people did not realize what they were looking at. I could have never seen that unless I was with the general. I would have never had permission to go into that part of the White House. You have made alive, raised up, and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not a tour, not a backstage pass, not a first-class plane ticket to, not dinner with the president or a king, but you are in relationship with the sovereign king and creator of all, Jesus Christ. You're no longer dead, you're alive with hope. You're no longer locked in sin. You've been forgiven and made new. Your past no longer controls you. You're controlled by His Spirit. Your affections of sin will always nag at you, but indwelt by His Spirit, you and I have the power to say no. We are being transformed into His likeness, not the world's likeness. And this, to me, is the greatest question that I wrestle with more than any other question in my Christian life, is why do I look so much like the world? I'm not talking about do's and don'ts. I don't do this or do that because I'm a Christian. I'm saying I look just like my neighbors. I look just like the people in Brentwood and Franklin. I look just like the people in Nashville. I am no different. And they look at my life and their life. We all look the same. And that, that concerns me deeply about me. Because we're to be distinct. And Paul continues, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. What's he saying? God's demonstrated his grace by calling us to himself. By grace, you've been saved. You were dead. Now you're alive. And we might say it this way. You're a trophy. You're on display. He made us alive. He raised us up. And we're seated with him. We're in relationship with him. John Stott 
attended Cambridge, and his last year at Cambridge, one of the uh, principals of the schools, they have lots of schools, one of the principals of the schools were retiring, and they had a portrait commissioned of Reverend Paul Gibson as the retiring principal. And of course, they have a ceremony where they unveil the portrait and they show it to uh, Professor Gibson. He said when he looked at it, he, in the future, he said, people will look at the picture and they won't ask, who is that man? But they will ask, who painted the portrait? Stock continues, in our case, God has displayed more than skill. A patient after a major surgery is living testimony to a surgeon's skill. A condemned man after a reprieve to his sovereign mercy. We are both ex exhibits of God's skill and trophies of his grace. So when Middle Tennessee looks at you and me and they look at this church called Fellowship and they go, those people care about orphans and they adopt people. Interesting. What else do they say about us? More importantly, what do they say about you? What do they say about me? You're a trophy of his grace. Yeah, sure, some of our marble stands are faux marble. They're not the real thing anymore. Some of them are plastic with a little glitter. It's called gold stuck on the outside. They'll come off if you rub it because we're fallen creatures. But if we look as much like the world as the world, then how are we trophies of his grace? And we're not meant to be in a trophy case. We're meant to display God's grace in the world. He's made you alive. He's raised you up. And he's put you in a relationship with him. You see, we need a grace because we sin to the beginning. We need mercy because we sin every day thereafter. And he loves you. And he's adopted you if you've trusted Christ. And he calls you his child. And do you understand how much he loves you? And do you understand the relationship of what it means to be in him? Because until we do, it doesn't matter what we do. Because we're doing it for the wrong reasons. If I fill up Cindy's car for the wrong reason, it means nothing. If I do it because I love her and I cherish her, and it's a small thing for me to do to show it to her, if she misses it is not the point. It's do I love her no matter what. And that's God's love for you. How do we love those around us? That's what the world sees. Father, help us to understand this at times complicated concept of being in Christ. But when you look at us, you see your son's work. We are truly trophies of his grace Grace, we were saved, not because we were better than somebody else. We were more talented, more giving, smarter, more clever, more successful. But you loved for reasons we'll never comprehend. Help us to live a life that is a thank you back to you. Help us to live a life that expresses our love for you. That we are truly, eternally grateful and owe a debt of gratitude for all you have done. Because we are now in Christ. Help us, I pray, in his powerful name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.